0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Live Through Jesus podcast with Courtney Gilmore. On this episode, we're going to talk about making presumptions and being zealous for God. This is Joshua 19 to 22. Quickly before we get started, if you're new to Live Through Jesus, make sure you go to LiveThroughJesus.com and sign up to receive your free five week Bible study over Abraham. There you'll also find blog posts that coincide with the teachings on this podcast and social media links, which is another way to keep in touch throughout the week. Okay, let's get started. So the Israelites have just made it into the promised land and they're about to start a civil war. (laughs) The Eastern tribes have done something that the Western tribes thinks is wrong and they're ready to go to war with them. The good thing is that the reason they are willing to go to war with their brothers is because they think they've done something against God. So they have such a defense for God that they're willing to go to war with their brothers. Thankfully, they go and talk to them first and realize, actually, they're not doing anything against God at all. What they did was actually because they loved God so much. And so we're going to go through this story, and then we're going to talk about how much do we love God? How much do we desire a connection with Him? How much do we care about being unified with other believers? worshiping corporately, spending time with other believers. How important is that to us? And then are we willing to defend his name? Are we willing to defend him even if it's uncomfortable? Even if that means maybe we have to go confront someone. Maybe we have to even confront them about their sin. Is that something we're supposed to do? If we are supposed to do it, how do we go about that? Who do you confront? When do you confront them? All of those things. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So last week we left off with Joshua allotting all of the 12 tribes their land except for the Levites. So in chapter 20 and 21, we're going to talk about allotting the land to the Levites and then we'll get into this story about civil war in chapter 22. So When Moses was still alive, when they were all still on the other side of the Jordan, he told them, when you get into your land and everybody has their own allotted pieces of land, then I want six cities designated to be cities of refuge. And these cities of refuge were for someone who had killed someone else by accident. Unintentionally, something happened and someone died. They could run there to this city so that they wouldn't be killed by that person's family member. And they would stay in this city until they were to go to trial. Once they went to trial, then the high priest and elders of that town decided whether that person was guilty or innocent. If they were an actual murderer, if they got found guilty of murder and not it being an accident in some way, then they were condemned to death. The death penalty was imposed on anyone who killed someone else. But if it was an accident, then they could go back to this city of refuge and live there so that the person in their the relatives of that person could not come and kill them. Because even though it was an accident, maybe their... Uh, relatives still were like, well, we don't have our family member and so we don't want you alive either. And so they would flee to this place and they would stay there until the high priest that sentenced them died. And that was just kind of a statute of limitations. And if they ever decided to leave this city, then the Avenger of Blood, which is the next of kin, had the right to kill that person because they had killed their family member even though it was an accident. So they allotted... Six cities that were all evenly dispersed so that no one city was further than a day away from any place in Israel. That way, if anyone killed someone by accident, they could get there quickly and they would be safe until their their trial. And now that they've designated all of the land to the Israelites, it's time for them to designate these cities. So they designated three cities on the eastern side of the Jordan and three cities on the western side of the Jordan. On the eastern side, they had Kadesh, which was in the land of Naphtali, Shechem, which was in the land of Ephraim, and Hebron, which was in the land of Judah. Then on the eastern side, they had Bezer, which was in Reuben's land, Ramoth, which was in Gad's land, and then... Golan, which was in Manassas land. So these are their six cities. And these are the first six Levitical cities. These cities belong to the Levites. They ran them, okay? Then after all those cities had been allotted, the Levites came back to Joshua and they said, okay, what about the rest of our cities? Aren't we allotted more cities? And he says, yes, 42 more cities will be allotted to you. And you will get those cities with the walls and pasture land around those. From the wall of the city, they would measure 1,500 feet. And that is how far out the pasture land would go. And then on every side, it was 3,000 feet long. So they would have the city inside of the walls to live and then the pasture land outside of it to raise their animals and all of those kinds of things. And these Levitical cities were kind of like county seats or something. These people were the governing body of the the surrounding towns. So they were evenly dispersed, they taught the people the laws because the religious leaders were also the people that enforced the laws. They were also the legislatures and the judges and all of that. And that was what was inside of these cities. So they taught the laws of God. They enforced the laws of God. And these were the cities that they allotted to them. So Levi had three sons of his own, Kohath, Merari, and Gershom. Coeth was the tribe that Aaron and Moses had descended from. And so they were the priestly tribe. They were the only tribe that was allowed into the tabernacle or later the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was. And since God knew that Jerusalem would eventually be where his house would be, where the temple would be built, the first 13 cities were in Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin's land. Because that land was close to Jerusalem. And he knew that that tribe would need to be close to the temple. Now, right now, the tabernacle is in Shiloh. And so the other 10 cities that were given to Kohath were given to Ephraim, Dan, and the half tribe of Manasseh on the western side of the Jordan. And these places were closer to Shiloh. So right now, while this is where the tabernacle is, where God's house is, then those priests would be closest to it. And just some of the cities that were allotted, we're not going to read all of the 23 cities that were given to Kohath, but one of them was Hebron, and that was a city within Judah. And remember, that city has already been given to Caleb. And so Caleb got the fields and the villages, the Levites got the city, and then this was also a city of refuge. And so they had a place for the people to run there also. So all of that was happening in the land of Judah in Hebron. Then within Benjamin's land was Gibeon, and if you'll remember Gibeon, was the people that tricked the Israelites in the beginning not to kill them, making them think that they lived in a foreign land and they didn't. And since they uh, tricked them, they ended up submitting them to forced labor instead of killing them. And so they live in the city of Gibeon and they help the Levites there. They do things to benefit God. Um, since that is a Levitical city. And then Shechem was one of the cities of refuge in Ephraim. Remember, we talked about Shechem before. So these are just significant cities, cities we may know the names of. And then Gezer was also designated as a Levitical city in the land of Ephraim. And that is one of the cities that they had not conquered yet. There were still people living there that were not Israelites, much less Levites. And so some of these Levitical cities weren't even conquered yet. And so they were given to the Levites. But if they didn't run the people out of there, then they didn't really have full possession of them. And Gezer was one of those cities. And this is the city that the king of Egypt conquered in Solomon's time and gave to his daughter as a wedding present when he gave her to King Solomon. And so this city eventually gets conquered, but it is not now at this time. And it is a Levitical city within the uh, land of Ephraim. And then Dan got four cities. But remember, Dan never fully conquered his land. And he ended up moving to the north anyway and basically possessing land up in the north. And so what ended up happening is two of his four cities that were given to him for the Levites never were possessed by the Levites. So. That's just a little bit of information about that land. Now, after Kohath has gotten his 23 cities, then Gershom received 13 cities that were located in Issachar's land, Asher's, Naphtali's, and the half-tribe of Manasseh that was on the eastern side. And Manasseh only received two Levitical cities on each side of the Jordan River, but on this side... Golan was one of the cities that they received, and that was also a city of refuge. So that is significant for them. And then another city of refuge that belonged to Gershon was Kadesh, and that belonged in Naphtali, and Naphtali had three total cities. And then Asher and Issachar both had four Levitical cities between them. Then lastly, Merari got his Levitical cities. He got 12 in all. 8 of them were on the eastern side and 4 of them were on the western side. And Zebulun got the 4 on the western side, and remember he was kind of in the center in the north. He had no coastal land, no water. There was just a brook that ran through his land. And then Each tribe of Reuben and Gad received four Levitical cities of their own on the eastern side, and Gad's had a city of refuge that was in Gilead, and then Heshbon was another of his significant cities, something that we might have heard of before. And so the Levites had 48 cities in all, six cities of refuge, 42 cities scattered throughout the land. So this is the chapters 20 and 21 in Joshua. Now, beginning in chapter 22, Joshua says, okay, everybody's gotten their land now. I want everyone to go and settle in their own land. And then he gave a goodbye to the eastern tribes. He said, y'all have done a great job. You came over here. You fulfilled your duty. You fought with your brothers. And now it's time for you to go back to your land. He says, but I want you to remember what Moses told you. And so I want to read you this. This is in Joshua 22, verse five. And it says, only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord commanded you to love the Lord, your God, to walk in all his ways to keep his commands and to cling to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So these are his instructions to them before they cross the Jordan River. And then he blesses them and it says he sends them away with livestock, silver, gold, bronze, iron, clothes. And everyone has all of this plunder that they have collected from the people that they've conquered the land from. And now it's dispersed amongst everyone. Everyone goes to their own land. Now, here is where the problem comes in. Just before they cross over the Jordan, they build this huge altar to God. And then they cross over the river and start settling in their land. Well, when the Israelites realize this, they're like, we're not supposed to build altars to God. Because God had commanded them the only altar that they were supposed to sacrifice on or make offerings on was the altar that was in either the tabernacle or the temple, wherever it is that his house was, because they presented their offerings to him. And so they gave, and so wherever he is, that's where they would present it. Presumably, if they had an altar at another spot, they would be sacrificing to another God because God says his presence is in this ha- town that he has named as his. And so that is Shiloh right now. That's where the tabernacle is. Eventually, it'll be Jerusalem where the temple is. So they already have a altar in Shiloh where the tabernacle is and Now they've built this altar right by the river and everybody's like, they have already disobeyed God. Joshua just gave them this charge and said, you know, obey all of God's commands, follow him, love him, serve him, and look what they've done. And we can't let this stand because if we do, we're all going to be in trouble for it. God has told us as a nation to worship only him, to sacrifice only to him, and to sacrifice only on his altar. And they've gone and built another altar. We're going to have to go to war with them. And so they all gather in shallow and they prepare for war. They're ready to go to war. And then thankfully, uh, they decide maybe we should go talk to them first. So Phineas was the grandson of Aaron. And remember, Aaron was the first high priest. He has died. Now his son, Eleazar, is the high priest. And Phineas is Eleazar's son. Phineas is also the one who fought against his fellow Israelites when they had married the Midianite women, because that was also a command that God had given them not to marry these Midianite women. And they did it anyway. And he actually killed one of the men who was flaunting this woman in front of everybody. And God said when he did this, Phineas is zealous for his God and you can see he's still being zealous for his God. He's willing to go to war with two and a half tribes just to defend God's name. But before he does that, Phineas takes 10 other men, the heads of each one of the tribes with him, and they go over and they speak to these Eastern tribes. And they meet up with them in Gilead. And here's what they said to them. This is Joshua twenty two sixteen, and they say, this is what the whole congregation of the Lord says. What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the Lord God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourself an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? And then they proceed to remind them of how it's always turned out bad for the whole nation every time that someone goes against God. And so they remind them of the incident with the Midianite. And they say, do you not remember what happened at Peor? God sent a plague on us and it didn't stop until Phineas killed this man and his wife. Do you not remember this? Do you not remember what happened to us when Achan stole the treasure from the king of Jericho? Do you not remember that? We got defeated in battle after that. And so right when we're getting started, why would you do this to us? This is verse 22 of chapter 22. And they say, the mighty one, God, the Lord. And then they say it again, the mighty one, God, the Lord he knows and let israel itself know so he say so here's what he, they're doing here they're saying this exact same phrase twice to let them know that they know that god is powerful they know all of these things about the plagues and the losing the battles every time that they disobey and then they also say the lord to let you know he is our lord we do obey him we're not disobeying him here And then they say, God already knows this, but we're going to explain it to you now. And this is their explanation. They say, if we've built this altar to sacrifice on like you think, then yes, you're right. We deserve to die. God himself should kill us. But that's not what happened. Here's what happened. We were crossing over the Jordan and we thought to ourselves, what if we get over here? And then they decide... Yeah, those people, they're on the other side. They're not really part of our nation anymore. We don't want them to worship in our temple and be part of our nation anymore. What if that happens? What if years down the road, their children decide, yeah, they're not part of our nation. That boundary of the Jordan River has separated us. And so they're not part of our nation. We don't want them to come over here. What if that happens? They got concerned and they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to build this huge altar here before we cross over so that everyone will remember that we get to be in the temple or the tabernacle where this altar, the one that looks like this one that we just built, actually is. We do get to worship over here. So when those people on the western side of the Jordan look over to us and their first thought is, oh, they have a boundary over there and they're not part of our nation. They don't get to come over here and worship. Then they will see this altar. And this altar looks exactly like the one that's in their tabernacle. And they're going to be like, Oh, I forgot. No, they they do get to worship with us. This is a witness between us. This will remind everyone for generations that this is the way that it is, that we get to come over here and worship with you. We are a part of your nation. That's why we did it. They said in verse 29, far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering or grain offering or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord, our God that stands before the tabernacle. Far be it from us. That's not what it was for. We never intended to sacrifice on it. We never intended to give any offerings on it. We only built it as like a monument as a witness, as a reminder. That's all it was. Just like all of the other memorials that we've built, this one just resembles that one so that it reminds you we get to go to the real actual altar that you also go to and we're a part of your nation. That's it. That's its only purpose. So once they explain themselves everyone was so relieved they were like oh good that's all it was y'all were just making a a monument that's it you weren't doing at all what we thought you were doing I'm so glad we're gonna go back to our land yes we completely agree with you you are a part of our nation you do get to come and worship in our temple everything's fine so this is just a great reminder to us right that we need to go talk to people before we just, uh, you know, go and attack them. If we think someone has done something that they shouldn't do, we need to discuss it with them before we're just like, Oh, I think I know exactly what's going on. Seems pretty obvious to me. No reason to discuss it with them. We need to go and talk to them, right? We never need to presume what's in someone's heart, what their motives are, or even what they're doing because sometimes it looks like something that it's not. And also, maybe they have a good reason. Maybe it's something we haven't thought of. So we always need to go and talk with people before we just start problems with them. So that's kind of the first obvious lesson that we can learn from this passage. But the other thing that I really wanted us to focus on today is how both of them were zealous for their God, right? Both of them are fighting for their God. The Eastern tribes are fighting for a connection with God. They don't want to lose that connection that they have with him, And they don't want to lose that connection that they have with his people. They want to be unified with his people. And they want the deep worship that they get from worshiping in that temple in his presence. They don't want to lose that. And it just makes me think, how badly do we care about our connection with God? How much do we desire to be in his presence? How important is that to us? Psalm 63 kind of talks all about this. It says, you know, I seek you early in the morning. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land. Um, I've looked for you in the sanctuary. I meditate on your word. Everything, I just can't quit thinking about you. And, you know, sometimes we can feel guilty. It's like, oh, I know I should feel like that, but I don't. That's not how I feel. And, but when we read verses like this, we're like, uh, oh, it kind of renews our sense of, oh yeah, I do want you, God. I do have a deep desire to know you more, to love you more, to spend more time with you. And so if that's something that you struggle with today, just Start spending more time with God. Start uh, talking to Him and reading His Word and see if it doesn't conjure up these feelings within you, you know, make you have a stronger desire for Him. This is something that we deeply need is to have just a passion for God, right? And then the other question, uh, if we're looking at the Eastern tribes is, How badly do we desire this connection with other believers, other people that know and love God as much as we do? How badly do we want to be around those people? How badly do we want to worship corporately? How important is is it to us to go to church, to be with other people that have common goals, common things that matter to them, common laws that they go by, and people that can encourage us and help us grow and get closer to him, right? How important is that to us? This is Hebrews ten twenty four to 25, and it says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. So it says, don't stop worshiping together like some people do. Go to church, spend time with other believers. This is important because you need this in order to stir up love and good works, to exhort one another, to encourage one another. This is important. Worshiping together is important. Yes, it's important for us to read our Bible and pray and talk to God and spend time with Him alone in our homes. That is very important. And with our families and with our friends and at our work, yes, all of that is important. But it is also important to meet together at church and worship Him together and learn together. This is important. So we want to be zealous for our God like the Eastern tribes. Having a great, great desire for him and for his people. And if you don't have that desire right now, it's okay. Just start reading, start praying, start going to church and, and try <laughs> to glean the things from the, from that relationship with him, the relationship with other believers that he has intended for you to have. And then the second question is, how zealous are we for our God in defending him? Are we like the Western tribes that are willing to defend him at all costs? Does it bother us when people dilute his word or pervert his word or act completely contrary to him and taint his name? Is that important to us? Does that matter to us? Are we willing to do something about it? And if we are, what? right? And when? When do you do something about it and when do you not? So that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of this time. The first thing is, yes, this should matter to us. We should defend God's name. But the first thing we have to realize is this person that's doing this thing that's against God, are they a fellow believer or are they an unbeliever? Because if they're an unbeliever, they're not tainting God's name because they don't carry God's name, right? So we're not defending his name in that manner because they aren't, they aren't carrying his name. And they may not even know his laws. How can we hold them accountable to his laws if they haven't professed him to be their Lord, right? We can't. And so we treat unbelievers completely different in their sin than we treat ourselves and fellow believers. The only reason to talk to an unbeliever about their sin is in relation to their Savior, right? We do have to talk to them about their sin, but it is in order to point them to their Savior and Lord. And then once he's their Lord, then it's a whole different discussion, right? So when we talk to unbelievers, we are talking to them about their sin only in relation to Jesus only to tell them, hey, there is someone that created you. And as your creator, he, he also created the rules. But as humans, we break the rules. And since we break the rules, we need someone to pay the price for those. And then we can also explain to them about the Holy Spirit and how he helps us walk better in God's ways. That is the reason to talk to unbelievers about their sin. When we speak to them, we're talking to them as a fellow sinner, someone that is been where they are and we found freedom from that sin and we want them to find freedom from that sin too. And so we just tell them, you know, we remember what it was like whenever we were not Christians and how guilty we felt and how we suffered the consequences of our sins all the time. And we don't want that same thing for them. And we want them to see that they can find freedom from that. And through that, they can also inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is the purpose to talk to unbelievers about their sin. But believers We also have to talk to them as fellow sinners. Yes, for sure. But we do address their sin differently because they do bear the name of God, right? And we don't want them representing God in a way that is not, that's contrary to him, to who he really is. We are the ones that show the world who God is. And if we are doing things that are completely contrary to him, then we're damaging his name. And so we need people to come to us when we're doing that. And we need to go to other people when they're doing it. Matthew five fourteen to 16 talks about how we are the light of the world. We are the city on the hill. We are supposed to let our light shine So that people will see our good works and that will cause them to glorify God. Well, if we're doing things that are contrary to him, then they're not seeing our good works. They're seeing our sin and that's not going to cause them to glorify God. Right. And so we want to represent him well. That is very, very important. We are supposed to look different than the world. God says that we are supposed to be holy as he is holy. And we think holy means perfect. And we're like, well, we're not that. But that's not what it means. What holy actually means is to be set apart. And so he says, I want you to set yourselves apart, look different from everyone else, just like I look different from everyone. And If we're not doing that, then we look just like the world, no reason that we are able to point them to God at all. And then if we're saying we're Christians, and yet we are acting completely contrary to him, then we're kind of pointing people to God. But the problem is, is that that's really not God. And so we have made him look in a way that he is not. Have you ever heard people say, They don't want to go to church because all those people are just a bunch of hypocrites. Or they don't want to go to church because those people are judgmental. All they are is self-righteous. They tell them all the things that they do wrong. They're And they're doing more wrong things than we are. When we don't represent God well, not only do we make him look bad, but we make the whole body of Christ look bad. The church looks bad whenever one believer acts in a way that is not really the way the rest of the church looks. But if the unbeliever sees that person and they say that person is so self-righteous, they walk around and they act like they don't do anything wrong. And actually, they do things that are way more wrong than I do. I even know that that's wrong. And somehow they think it's okay and they do it. I don't want any part of that. So we have to represent God well. This is very important. But there's a few things that we have to keep in mind before we just go telling everybody to stop doing all the things that they're doing, okay? The very first thing we need to do is examine ourselves. Maybe we're not tainting God's name in the same way that that person is, but maybe we're tainting his name in another way. Maybe it's even worse what we're doing than what this other person is doing. And then we're going to go to them and we're going to tell them about their sin. And they're going to say, really, you're talking to me about that when you're doing this? Are you kidding me? And so we need to examine ourselves first, correct ourselves first, and then we can go and talk to someone else. And so this is Matthew 7, 1 through 5. And it says, judge not that you be not judged. A lot of times people just stop right there and they think, okay, well, I just can't judge anyone else and that's it. And that's not what it says. It it's, it continues. It says, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it'll be measured back to you. So he's saying, you know, don't go hard on someone because they might go hard on you. If you're judging people, they're going to judge you. So you got to be ready for that. And then he says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? But you don't consider the plank in your own eye, the more egregious sin of your own. How can you tell your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So it doesn't say we can't ever judge anyone. It just says first make sure that you've got your stuff in order. Clear your conscience. Make sure there's not something glaringly apparent that you need to change before you start going and talking to everybody else. And then make sure that you're willing to receive whatever you're doling out. Make sure that you're kind to someone if you want them to be kind to you. It it isn't to say that we're never supposed to confront anyone. We just need to, t- to take stock of our own things. James 2.10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. If you break one law, you're a lawbreaker, just like everybody else. And so we've got to remind ourselves of that and take stock of our own uh, sins before we go talking to someone else. Now, None of us are going to be perfect. We can't completely eliminate every sin in our life before we go talk to everybody else, nor can we go talk to every single person about every single sin that they're committing, right? That's not what we're talking about. That would be unproductive it would not be beneficial to anyone. It's not what God wants. It's not beneficial to his name. It's not beneficial to you or that person. And so we can't do that. So then when do we do it, right? When do we decide, okay, this is a big enough deal that I need to confront? It. So there's a few reasons that I've thought of. You may think of some more. But one of the reasons that I thought of that we should confront someone is if they are, you know, doing something unknowingly, then we definitely, if we've been a Christian longer, we think that they just have no idea that this is something God wouldn't want, then we would want to go and talk to them about that, right? We we would want somebody to tell us because if we're a new Christian, we're trying to follow God and we're not following God, we would be upset by that. So we would want to confront someone in that situation and talk with them about that. We would also want to talk with someone if their sin is very public, because if their sin is very public, then they are being a bad witness to God. And then that is going to hurt God, his name, the church, the body, all of the things that we talked about before. So if it's very, very public and it's a very, very obvious sin, then we have to say something to them about it because we don't want them to continue to represent God's name in that way. We also want to do it if they're damaging um, their relationship with God, right? We care about their relationship with God. And if something that they're doing is damaging their relationship with the Lord, we're like, I want to say something to them because I don't want someone that I love, another fellow Christian, to have a bad relationship with God because they're doing something they shouldn't be doing. And then if it's harming someone else, then we obviously have to say something. We, we can't just stand idly by and watch their sin hurt someone else, right? Um Isaiah 1, 16 to 17 says, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before your eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. So, We want to seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend those that need defending. So if we have to confront someone in that situation, then we would. And then lastly, if their sin is habitual, if they are perpetually doing something wrong, then either they think they're hiding it from everyone, which they're not. And in that case, you would want to let them know, Hey, I know what you're doing and if I know what you're doing other people know what you're doing you're hurting the name of God you're hurting your relationship with him because he also knows what you're doing and so you would want to confront them in that situation um they also might be doing it habitually because they just think it's okay they've twisted it in their mind to make themselves think that this is okay and you've got to bring that to their attention because, as I said before, even unbelievers have this, you know, built in laws that God has written on our hearts that say, you know, this is wrong. And so if we've twisted it to make it right, and then we're walking around representing God's name, thinking we're doing something that's okay. And then even unbelievers are looking at us and saying, man, that's wrong. I, I If that's what God allows, I don't want any part of that. That is not okay. So we've got to confront someone in that situation. And then if they're just continuing to do these things, they're just in complete rebellion, then we obviously have to address it, right? And so habitual sin is different than just sinning like we all do because it runs the risk of becoming your lifestyle, right? And the Bible talks about practicing sin. And you know how I told you earlier that the Holy Spirit can help us walk in God's ways, do things in the way that pleases God. Galatians, Five at the end of that chapter talks about walking in the spirit and walking in the flesh, and so I'm just going to read that to you. This is galatians five sixteen all the way to twenty five and it says, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you will not fulfil the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you don't do the things that you wish, but if you're led by the spirit' You're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, and they are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So that's different than someone who has done this before, right? Someone that has committed adultery or someone that just sleeps with people all the time with no concerns whatsoever, right? This is different. And so those that, practice these things, you want to address because this has become their lifestyle. So now that we've figured out who needs to be confronted, how do we do it? We talked about one already. We examine ourselves first, right? That's the very first thing we do. We check our own sin before we talk to anyone else. And we make sure that we're not doing any of those things, that there's not anything that we've told ourselves is okay, but it's not nothing that we're hiding from other people, nothing that is habitual, that has become part of our lifestyle. All of those things we got to examine ourselves. Once we do that, the second thing that we have to do is go to them in love. We're not going to them trying to virtue signal and say, oh, look how good I am and how bad you are. That's not going to be effective. It's not even helpful to you. It also taints the name of God. We're going to them because we care about them and we care about God. And so our attitude and our words have to reflect that. When we go to that person, we need to pray about what we say, how we're going to say it, and that we will present ourselves in a way that we care about them and we care about God and that they will receive it in that same manner. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if a man is overtaken by any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we do need to bear their burdens, which sin is a burden. We do need to do that, but we have to do it, restore them in gentleness so that we don't bring ourselves into sin, right? So that's the first thing. The next thing is that we don't do it to embarrass them. We don't do it to, you know... Like I said, virtue signal, make everybody else see how we're, you know, rebuking them. Nothing like that. Let me read to you what it says in Matthew eighteen, fifteen to 17. This discusses specifically how we confront someone who has sinned. Uh, and so this is verse 15 says, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, then you've gained your brother. So that's the first step. We're going to do this in the smallest scale possible. So the first thing is we just go to them, just us. We don't talk about them behind their backs. We don't say it in front of everybody. We don't, you know, announce it to the world. We go to them quietly, just them, and we try to, you know, Relay to them that we're concerned about them, we're concerned about others, we're concerned about God's name. Okay? So we do that. If that works, great. We never have to mess with anything else. We never have to bring it before anyone else. But if it doesn't work, then it says in verse 16, But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, If he doesn't listen to you, then you find someone else that also loves this person and also loves God and you go to them and you say, hey, here's what's going on. I'm worried about this person or I'm worried about how they are representing God's name and I'd like for you to come with me and talk with them about it. And so you bring one or two people with you and y'all go and talk about it. Then it says the third step, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Okay, so this is another instance that you would definitely want to go and talk to someone. If they're in a leadership position in your church, that's very important because you don't want them teaching other people if they somehow think that what they're doing is right, or if they are leading this group of people and they're doing something obviously wrong. We don't want that. That is not going to represent your church well. And so if they're in a leadership position in your church, you definitely have to speak to them. And you would want to bring it before your church and say, hey, this person is doing this outside of the church and other people are going to know it if I know it this is not okay. We need to address this because they're representing God's name. Now, even if they're not in a leadership position, this would be the course of action that we would follow if they're involved in our church and we're trying to restore them to God. And then it says, if they won't even listen to the church, then treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. And so what they're saying is if they're not even listening to what you say is in the church, if all of you are in agreement that this is what God believes is right or wrong and they're going against God, then treat them as if they're an unbeliever because they're not following God and it's blatant and they choose not to. And they're just saying, I'm going to live like the world. I don't choose to follow God anymore, so treat them like the people that don't follow the Lord. Treat them like the rest of the world. And so these are the ways that we can be zealous for our God, that we can go to others and talk to them if we find that they are doing something against God that's tainting his name, tainting the church, other believers, the body of Christ, all of those things it's important that we defend God, that we fight for him, but we have to do it in the right way with the right people at the right time. And so those are just a couple of tips that I had as I was reading through this passage and I realized, oh, all of these people are just having a deep passion for God. And how can we do that too? So- Next week, we are going to finish Joshua, God willing. This is my plan anyway. We are going to finish the book of Joshua before the end of this month. And in March, we're going to start Judges. That is the plan. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that episode. Also, join me on social media so you can find all the verses for this. I didn't read a ton of verses here today, so I will be posting verses throughout the week that I didn't read that support this. Also, if you want the written lesson, this would be a good one to subscribe to Substack for because I didn't read all of these things. So there's a lot more verses in the written lesson if you choose to just. To subscribe at Substack. It'll be $6 a month. You'll get this lesson along with all of the lessons that I've done in Deuteronomy and Joshua. You can continue to subscribe every month and get a lesson every week sent to your email and you can read it, print it out, study it with other people, do it by yourself, whatever you want to do. If you just want to subscribe for one month, get all of these lessons and then cancel, you're also free to do that. I can't stop you. I hope you don't want to do that, but you're free to do that. Now, if you don't want to do that, no problem. All of this stuff is free here and we can just continue on just like we've been doing. But do go to Substack and read the blog post. It'll be free or to my uh, website, livethroughjesus.com. Go and read that because I line out all of these things about how you talk to people, how you confront them about their sin, who you confront and all of that in this blog post. So that'd be a good way for you to get all of that information. So anyway, that's all I have and I'll see you back next week. Thanks. Have a good day. Yeah. Mm-hmm.